Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read great business books and explore how they can help us navigate our careers. Read along with us so you can become a stronger leader within your company or a more adept entrepreneur. This month, we read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. Nike recounts building Nike on a shoestring budget by importing shoes from Japanese manufacturers, battling banks and supply issues to grow the company, branching out into their own manufacturing capabilities, and sustaining the morale of a motley crew of colleagues through the process. Along the way, Knight's powerful memoir provides insight into entrepreneurship, managing growth, and finding your mission in life. But before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. Hi, I'm Eli Mitchell, and I'm a management consultant. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So let's start with the author. Who is Phil Knight? So Phil Knight was born in Portland in 1938. His father was a lawyer and later a newspaper publisher. He attended the University of Oregon, where he ran middle distance track events and studied journalism. After graduating from the University of Oregon, he spent a year in the Army on active duty and then ultimately actually seven years in the reserves. Uh, After his one year of active duty, he enrolled at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. And at Stanford, he actually wrote a paper for a small business class called Can Japanese Sports Shoes Do to German Sports Shoes What Japanese Cameras Did to German Cameras? So ultimately laying out the premise for what would become Nike. In 1962, after finishing business school, he took a trip around the world where he first met with Onitsuka, the makers of Tiger Shoes, which uh, a couple of years later he would begin importing. Um, He actually formed a partnership with his former running coach at Oregon, Bill Bowerman, to sell Tiger Shoes in the U.S. under the name Blue Ribbon Sports, and that would ultimately become Nike in 1971. So he was the chairman and CEO of Blue Ribbon Sports and Nike for about 52 years until he retired in 2016. Nike, I looked up today, is the 13th most admired company in the world, according to Forbes or Fortune. So most people that are listening probably are familiar with Nike, but maybe not everyone is. So can somebody tell me a little bit about what Nike does and why they're such an iconic company? So Nike is uh, an American multinational corporation that makes footwear and athletic apparel and equipment. And I believe it's actually the world's largest sports apparel and athletic shoe supplier. So they are known for their partnerships with, you know, Michael Jordan and, you know, many other athletes where they produce uh, footwear and athletic apparel, you know, specifically tailored to that athlete, as well as, you know, partnerships with many of the, uh, the great sports teams. So going back to the beginning of the book, How did Phil Knight end up starting Nike? And originally, as you said, it wasn't Nike, it was Blue Ribbon Sports, but how was his life going that eventually got him on a trajectory to start this company? Yeah, so as Short mentioned, right after his one-year stint in the Army, uh, Knight went to business school at Stanford Business School, and he he wrote this paper on with the thesis that Japanese shoes could upend the running shoe market. And he, he had been a runner uh, at Oregon in college. So he knew about running shoes quite a bit. It was interesting, I would say in the book, he didn't actually go into too much detail as to how he came up with the thesis on this paper. I think he just saw that the Japanese economy was booming, that they were good manufacturers and had high quality products. But it didn't seem like he had any specific examples for why he built that thesis for running shoes coming from Japan. He called it his crazy idea. And I think after business school, he 
talks and he's pretty open in the book about just his friends are starting to get married, having their full-time jobs, having children. And he's kind of running around in Oregon trying to figure out what he wants to do with his life. And he keeps on coming back to this crazy idea that he talks about. So he convinced his dad that he wanted to go on an around-the-world trip, sold his car, got his dad to help fund it a little bit, stopped by Hawaii on the way for a few months. I actually lost track of the timing at that part and worked as an encyclopedia salesman for a little bit in Hawaii, not something that he was good at. And then he went to Japan. Um, In Japan, he first met with two GIs who had stayed there post-war and were helping introduce American businessmen into Japan. They helped introduce him to Anitsuka, which was the largest shoe company in Japan at the time. Phil Knight had this meeting. They were interested in getting into the U.S. market. And kind of in the meeting, even though he didn't actually have a company to refer to at the time, he said he came up with the name Blue Ribbon Sports while he was in that meeting room. And he made a deal to be their distributor on the West Coast in the US. I think had asked his dad to wire $50 to them for the first shipment. And then he continued on his around the world trip. And I would think I think the first drama of the book starts when he gets back from the around the world trip and the shipment of shoes still hasn't come. And it's several months. He has to go get a job. Uh, so it's several months before the shoes do come. Then when they do that, that's kind of where it gets started of his really going around to track meets, selling these shoes out of the back of his car, trying to convince people why they are better than Adidas. What an amazing story. He really started from nothing. Now, thinking at the time that he was starting, and this is the early 1970s, what was the athletic shoe business like, both in America and also how does that relate to these Japanese manufacturers? So I think Adidas was definitely the dominant player at the time. It did seem like there were a few other players that you would know uh, out there, such as New Balance. And then he threw around a few other names in the book that I was not familiar enough with to recall quickly. But it seems like there just wasn't a lot of innovation. So what differentiated Nike was really that they had Bill Bowerman, uh, his former coach from the University of Oregon. He got him on board as a 49% uh, co-founder from the start. Bill Bowerman was, well, he's a bit of a legend in track and field, and I'm sure being a co-founder of Nike helps contribute to that. But he did, he essentially ran shoe experiments on his athletes at Oregon. Uh, so all the B-team track athletes, of which Phil Knight was one, he would cut apart their shoes. He would put different uh, agents kind of in the shoes to give them more lift, to give them more spring, more stability. Like he was really this uh, alchemist in his garage uh, trying to invent more comfortable running shoes because it didn't exist at the time. And so with Bill Bowerman on board working with Onitsuka Nike, or as part of Blue Ribbon Sports, I guess, at the time, they really started to innovate in a way that seemed... uh, Adidas and the other shoe companies weren't at the time. And I think a part of the story, too, is that they're having the shoes manufactured in Japan. At the time, Japanese athletic shoes are seen as a lower-end product. And there's kind of this evolution of Japanese products going from the low-end to the high-end over time in the same way over decades, in the same way that happened with China, right? We had in when first Chinese products came onto the market in the U.S. in the 70s and 80s, they were seen as low-end 
Whereas today, China's manufacturing our most high-end products like our iPhones. And so I think this book kind of plays into that narrative a little bit where actually you see the rise in quality of the Japanese products that Nike's importing and he's actually showing to the market, hey, actually there's some great stuff coming out of Japan. At the beginning, um, it seemed that there was, you told a great uh, story about the innovation there, Eli, but at the beginning, I think they were really just importing basically finished products from Japan that they weren't really modifying too much. This was before the company was was in the millions of dollars of revenue. But at the very beginning, they were basically just importing a Japanese product and being the distributor of it. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. And that was actually something that kind of entertained me at the start of this book. Of he, It really seemed like Phil Knight showed up at this factory in Japan, looked at these tiger running shoes, and were like, okay, these are good. With not paying too much mind to if the American foot is different than the Japanese foot that they're being made for, right? Like it didn't even seem like he went around running in the shoes at any point. So yeah, he he did start as really just an importer of those shoes. But I think pretty early on when he got Bill Bowerman on board, Bill Bowerman started frantically writing to Onitsuka, trying to convince them uh, or to try different methods in their design. So you mentioned Bill Bowerman, very important part of the founding team. Who were some of the other players in the early years of Nike that made a major contribution? So employee number one was Jeff Johnson, who was probably one of my favorite characters in the book. Um, He was also a runner, uh, kind of, I guess he had run at Stanford with Phil Knight, which doesn't quite sound right to me because he went to Stanford Business School. But he helped open their first retail store in Santa Monica. He then relocated to the East Coast to help uh, open East Coast distribution. And then he started a factory on the East Coast. He was he was the employee number one, really just did everything, only really cared about running shoes and selling those shoes, would frantically write letters to Phil Knight quite frequently, these long letters, daily letters about each athlete who he was selling the shoes to. And just kind of painfully in the book, Phil Knight really undervalued him as an employee. I mean, he he took out ads in Runner's Magazine and just did a lot that um, it, it seemed Phil Knight wasn't valuing uh, in general that helped grow the company. Yeah, Jeff would even go on to uh, to name the company too. So once uh, they later on needed to to shift away from Blue Ribbon Sports, uh, I believe it was Jeff who who had the the name Nike come to him in a dream. Yep, it was. Which I I kept on expecting actually that that was going to come back to a story from Phil Knight's around the world trip when he talked about going to Greece and seeing the Nike statues, I guess, in Greece. Um, and it, it wasn't actually him who came up with it. I will also say that Jeff Johnson has retired to Lebanon, New Hampshire, so near and dear to all of our hearts. But, but Jeff Johnson was probably the only really other runner that was on the founding team of the company. So there was also Waddell, who had been a runner at Oregon, but then had had an accident and was wheelchair bound who really just helped manage the business and the operations and everything that Phil Knight said he didn't have the patience for in Oregon. Then some other members of the founding team were uh, Hayes and Strasser. So Hayes had been Phil Knight's former boss from Price Waterhouse. 
and I think was most memorable in the book for being overweight, along with Strasser, who was a lawyer that helped them in one of their early lawsuits who they brought in as in-house counsel. And really, I'm entertained a few times in the book when Phil Knight describes the motley crew when he looks at the his founding team and it's two overweight guys and one guy who's wheelchair bound. And then they have Jeff Johnson, who's the only runner in the group, but such an introvert that he doesn't really even attend any meetings. He just reads his book on the side. So that was the founding crew that they put together. Yeah. And I'd like to read a quote about that exact idea that they were not actually all runners on the founding team. So this is Phil Knight recounting a corporate retreat. And he says, Sometimes after cathartic laughter, I looked around the table and was overwhelmed by emotion. I was moved by all this comradeship, loyalty, and all this recognition. One could even feel some form of love. I was shocked to realize that it was me who had gathered these people around my project and that they were part of the founders of a multi-million dollar company specializing in athletic shoes. This team was unlikely. A paraplegic, two obese individuals, a guy who smoked like a chimney. So... I think that's really interesting that people could be so critical to the company who are not necessarily users of its product and not necessarily even people like the obese individuals who want to use its product, but instead might just be passionate about the business side. Yeah, I thought this was interesting. And I don't know how you uh, both felt about the book, but Phil Knight doesn't come across as a great manager in the book. I think that this book was a little different from other business books we've read I would say way more entertaining because it was just more of a life story. But he doesn't talk about his management style. He doesn't talk about, you know, how he changed his approach and learned things. He just really kind of comes across as like undervaluing some of his employees, avoiding confrontation and being a pretty poor communicator up until the point when it's kind of too late. And yet it seems pretty clear that he exuded some sort of passion for this idea that brought all of these people along, even though there were other things that they could be doing, right? There were Hayes and Strasser both quit their jobs um, at pretty, you know, pretty safe jobs that they had to come and join this company. And that's something that I think he probably undersells of himself in the book is why all of these people followed along with him. But I'm, I'm curious, is that something that you, uh, either of you felt reading the book was just seeing like, I'm not getting what his management style is out of this? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I feel like I really enjoyed this book and I feel like it does the opposite of what a lot of the other books that we've read does, right? So I feel like it focuses more on the story and it's really interesting. And um, frankly, all of the like pitfalls and whatnot, which I, I forget, we were talking about one of our recent books where we sort of said like it just seemed a little bit too easy, like that the the author wasn't sort of telling us the the real difficulties that you, that you have. And <laughs> I do not feel like uh, Phil Knight pulled any of the punches. He really like goes into all of the pain. And frankly, it's amazing, you know, for nearly 10 years of the company's life, he was still working full-time. So he was at PwC for for much of the time that he was founding Nike and then ultimately became a professor to have more time to be able to work on the company. But it was still at the point where, you know, the company wasn't doing well well enough to be able to pay himself. But yeah, to the the point of um, his management style, uh, I, I had one quote that I liked, which was, never tell people how to do things, tell them what to do, and they will surprise you with their ingenuity. 
so that's one one piece of it was that he did try to um, you know really trust his people, give them the the flexibility to accomplish things the way that they that they thought was best, and that it wasn't you know him being prescriptive about this is exactly the way that we're going to do things. Yeah, I find that pretty funny that he became a professor to have more time to do his entrepreneurship activities. As a professor, I guess I can agree we get four months a year off. And so uh, it is maybe advantageous as a profession to start a business in. Okay. Not that we don't work hard, by the way. (laughs) What's the business you're starting on the side? Uh, I develop my apps. I don't know. I I write my books. You write your books. You do write your books. I write my books. (laughs) Yeah. And I I will eventually start an amazing business that you'll all be proud of. (laughs) But he, that's actually part of the story, I think, is that he does have this full-time job while he's starting Nike, two different full-time jobs, in fact. And that goes against the grain of what we hear a lot from modern startup advice. We often hear, well, if you want to do a startup, you have to be all in. This can't be like your side project. Like, and then there's people who've kind of started to go against that the last couple of years. But I think the prevailing wisdom five to 10 years ago when startups were like everything everybody was talking about was you should really be all in. And when you go and do, let's say, a startup accelerator, they really want you to be all in. They expect you not to have any kind of other job. Um, so this is interesting because Phil Knight, one of the most successful entrepreneurs of all time, had a, not just another job. He had a full-time job throughout several years that were critical to the company. So does that just mean that he was like an extremely hard worker? So instead of working 40 hours a week, he was working you know, 80 or 120 hours a week. I'm sure that's part of it. That's clearly part of it. But does it also kind of change your mind a little bit about this need to be just doing one thing when you start a company? I thought it was refreshing a little bit um, just to read a startup story from kind of a different generation uh, because I, I think it's true, Kopech, we focus a lot on the more current startup stories and and it's just different, right? There's there is more money around, there is venture capital, there's more funding and therefore expectations that people are all in and frankly seem more focused on funding and on growth, right? So in the last month, I also read uh, Billion Dollar Loser, the book about the WeWork founder, Adam Newman, in which he just seems solely focused on financial growth. And that really wasn't at all what Phil Knight was focused on. He was just trying to launch a good product and to have an alternative. And at a point, he had to grow. And, And I actually thought it was kind of interesting in which like, he kind of had to grow uh, structurally, right? Like in order to keep his contract with Onitsuka, he needed to grow because otherwise they were going to renege on the contract and give it to another distributor in the US. And then he had to grow kind of like in order to keep up his cash reserves (laughs) or uh, in order to pay for his next shipment, he had to continue to grow. So that became the focus, but it's like he didn't go out from the start with the idea that he was going to start the next billion dollar, multi-million dollar apparel and footwear company. He just wanted uh, a new company. Um, And I guess for me, that was refreshing because I probably tend to think a little smaller. And it was cool to see that he, I think, thought a little smaller at the start, and then he was able to grow it into something very successful. Absolutely. I'd agree with that. 
So let's go into some of the specific difficulties that he had as he was growing Nike. In particular, he had a lot of difficulty with banks. Why were banks making it difficult for him to get the capital that he needed to import more product? Yeah, so I'm going to blank on some of the details here. So feel free to fill them in after I've uh, I've spoken for a bit. But I think that this is like a a common problem for for retail companies is that ultimately you need to to put up a lot of money in advance in order to get your product. And especially when you're importing from Japan, you're going to have very long lead times on that. And so you're always having to throw more money at inventory than you actually have because you know that like your sales are continuing to grow. So you're, you're always having to buy more inventory than you actually have the cash to finance. And so he he really struggled with that. His banks would not want to, you know, lend lend out the money. They felt like he wasn't, you know, keeping enough cash on hand. He was just, you know, pouring all of his cash into into future inventory because he saw, you know, every year they're they're growing like wild. But um it was it was a real struggle for them and um it created a lot of problems. They had to, you know, leave their banks multiple times. Banks wouldn't lend them the money that they needed. He was trying to get Onitsuka to help get them, you know, involved with with uh, Japanese trade financing. And, you know, Onitsuka didn't really want to do that either. And I think that was sort of how he ultimately did succeed was uh, with with I think it's called Nisho. It was a it was a Japanese trade financing group that he was ultimately able to to get financing from and who also helped introduce Nike to, you know, other partners beyond Onitsuka. Yeah, there were also some elements of it that seemed kind of specific to the 60s and 70s, right? That there was no interstate banking at the time. So there were really only like two banks in Oregon that he could use. The first one rejected him from the very start. So then he used his dad's bank and they were just very hesitant with his cash reserves and never wanted to help fund the next shipment. There was a lot of drama in the book. And I know Kopech, you mentioned this, how this, or short, you mentioned this, how this book, unlike other books we've read, it goes deep into all of the challenges that he faced and how nerve wracking each one was. So at one point, I think he had a million dollar payment to make to uh, Nisho, I guess was the name of the Japanese trade company that he was working with. And they were like $25,000 short because one of their clients hadn't paid them and they knew that that check was in the mail, but they needed to make the million dollar payment that day. Uh, so they went to their bank about it and like their bank ended up kicking them out as a result. And then suddenly they actually just didn't have a bank. And then two days later or something, they received the $25,000 check from their client, which actually bounced themselves because their client was also living on the float. So there's just kind of each chapter in the book. And I'm sure it felt like this in Phil Knight's life. It was like, oh, what more drama is this going to bring about what you're not going to be able to fund and how what creative way you need to look for financing? Again, in, in a world before there's a lot of venture capital out there or when the venture capital was really concentrated kind of only in Silicon Valley. And I thought it was interesting how much banking back then was about relationships. Yes, they looked at the numbers of the company and they were worried that they didn't really have enough cash on hand ever. But at the same time, it was also like, did the bankers trust Phil Knight? Did they feel like he was reputable? And I think there's a similar kind of story at the founding of Apple when Apple was trying to get its early loans and Steve Jobs walked in kind of looking like a hippie and they didn't really want to give them a loan. I think today it's a much more calculating like numerical decision than maybe it was back in the 60s and 70s. 
So they had trouble with the banks. They sort of kind of got over that with the Japanese trading company. But eventually, they're kind of moving away from this model of just importing shoes from Japan. And Eli, you spoke earlier about the innovation that came from Bowerman. I think one of the interesting anecdotes is the famous kind of waffle pattern on the bottom of Nike shoes originally came from Bowerman looking at a waffle iron in his home and just being like, wow, having an epiphany moment. So Bowerman had a lot to do with that. But but what was the big overarching reason that they eventually move away from just importing Japanese products? And how do they kind of get into this innovative mindset? I think macroeconomics played into it a lot, right? So I, I felt like each chapter in the book, which was a chronological book, right? So each chapter is just the new year. Uh, he kind of lists the new challenges that that year brought. And it seems like whenever he was talking about Japan at some point, it started to focus on Japan was in a recession. The yen was fluctuating a lot. Imports were just becoming more and more expensive from Japan. In addition to the fact that it was always slow, he was always facing challenges with Onitsuka. So Onitsuka actually at one point went and started courting other distributors in the U.S. despite Blue Ribbon Sports at the time having the rights to the full U.S. distribution. So when they needed to look beyond Onitsuka specifically, they looked at Japan more generally, but then they started facing all these macroeconomic challenges. So then they needed to look beyond Japan. So they did that. I guess first they started within the U.S. and I actually forget, was it Puerto Rico? where they did some manufacturing more domestically as well. But then they started to look at Taiwan and Korea as well, just to diversify their manufacturing uh, within Asia. And near the end of the book, Phil Knight actually goes to China as one of the first large shoe manufacturers to kind of try and move into China. And in the, ver- in the very end, in the kind of the epilogue, he starts to talk about the value of that and the value of the Chinese market. You know, I, I actually felt uh, it was more about diversification. Did I miss something in terms of it, it helped drive innovation to have that U.S. factory? I think that a lot of the innovation was coming from the, the team at headquarters more so that was the sense I got more so than the, the factories themselves. They were kind of sending prescriptions out to the factories. And I think that's because they had people on the team who were really passionate about footwear beyond those uh, folks that we talked about earlier, obviously. But then in addition, they were also forming these partnerships with famous athletes. And I think that that was having an impact as well. And there was some, kind of some back and forth with some of the athletes as well. Yeah, at one point uh, when they were talking about the Olympic trials, it was rough. You know, he had the the new Nike by then spikes, and he admitted that they were poorer quality than the Adidas spikes that were out there. And some athletes were still wearing them. And he was just like, oh, gosh, like, thanks, but we need to do better here. And yeah, when he realized certainly that they needed large athlete sponsors in order to continue to grow and, you know, compete with Adidas at that point, then they really needed to start focusing on the quality and making sure that they were shoes that those athletes would wear. One thing that Nike was really known for and still is, of course, is its branding, right? We, we know the famous Swoosh logo. And we it's actually interesting. The person who came up with that logo was only paid like $35 for the work, which we could talk about as 
a labor issue. But anyway, the company is so known for its brand and to think that they actually originally were just importing other people's products is interesting, right? So they really evolved from a reseller to an in-house brand and innovator. And I think that that couldn't have happened without having the people who were really, really passionate about the sport close to the company. And so I think these relationships, not only with Bowerman as a founding member of the team, but also with the athletes that would go to promote the products and give them feedback about the products as well, were critical to the company's success. So fostering those relationships, I think, is something that they did very well. Throughout all of this that we've been discussing so far, Phil Knight is in his 20s, then his 30s, he's getting married, he's having children, and he actually recounts some disappointments that he had in terms of how he was able to balance his personal life with running Nike. What were some of the things going on in his personal life that were challenging and what could he, as he reflected on all of that, have done differently? So I think a big piece of it was just you know, he was traveling all the time. And so he really wasn't there for, you know, his his kids as they were growing up. And so that was sort of a, a work-life balance thing that he that he wanted to really work on. And so he at one point did sort of take this uh, reflection on, you know, how how much of his time he was spending on on work relative to other things. And so he committed to being more involved in his children's life and actually being more involved in running. So he was going to run 20 kilometers a day. And he was going to, you know, have time for his family. And so, you know, he did really try to um, to shift his focus so that he would be around and be able to be involved in, in sports with his kids because it had been a really important part of his life. And he wanted it to be something he could share with his kids. But to, to some degree, he'd sort of like missed out on that opportunity to really bond with them. Yeah, it was rough at points. So his his wife, Penny, had been a student in his accounting class, and then he had hired her as an employee at Nike. So she was incredibly committed to Nike. And I think, you know, she's most coming up in the book for when she's helping with Nike events, right? Like when he needs help entertaining the Japanese businessmen in Oregon. And, you know, it, it, he is frequently going to Asia throughout the book and in the book only brings her once. And she's so excited to go. She's never traveled like that before. He talks about her pink suitcases that she was very excited about. And, you know, it, it seems that seems a bit like a loss. Now they've been happily married and are still happily married now. But it seems like he frequently only saw her when it related to Nike. And then with his children, you know, at one point, his oldest son, Matthew, says that he never wants to wear Nike shoes in his life, uh, which was kind of five-year-old way of expressing how upset he was that because of Nike, his dad just wasn't around. And then there was certainly a, a devastating part at the end of the book when Matthew dies in a scuba diving accident. And I think you can just understand the guilt in the book because of how frequently Phil Knight talks about his children in the book and some of the regrets I think that he does have in that he kept on setting goals to spend more time with them and then didn't. And for him to bring that up in the book, I think is uh, part of his processing of it. I will also say in some Googling afterwards, I don't know if either of you noted this, but he has a daughter as well who was born in 1983. So after kind of the timing in the book ends, 
she's not even mentioned in the acknowledgements at the end of the book. Um, and, you know, his son who is still alive is with like a full paragraph in the acknowledgements. So I don't know what that relationship is, um, but maybe he continued to struggle with balancing time with his family. That's a really interesting thing to pick up on. No, I didn't do that Googling. I noticed in the book, though, he did mention that he had a better relationship with one son than with the other son. So, I mean, I think maybe that would have happened naturally, no matter what career he was doing. But it's very likely, based on what we hear in the book about just how much time he was putting into the company, that that definitely hurt his personal relationships. And I think, you know, you can become a billionaire, but you can never get back the time that you missed with your children. So uh, maybe that's a bit of a cautionary tale that we get out of this book. So as we get through the 1970s, the book then abruptly stops in the 1980s. And it's kind of weird because there's still 40 years, almost 40 years at the time he's writing it, of Nike history to be recounted. And we're just getting into it. We're just getting excited for all of these successes that he's having and these innovations Nike's making. And then we hear just this really quick kind of afterward epilogue sort of chapter about the next 35 years. Why did he do that? Why does the book just stop? I think it would have been too long for him to go further. Um, But, you know, to me, this felt like it was the founding tale. It was he ended the book essentially when they brought Nike public and that team, that motley crew that he started with, everybody became millionaires, which just, again, never seemed to be the goal throughout the book. He says specifically how much each of them made in the IPO. And then he mentions he made uh, like 10 times or more as much as they did. I feel like he probably thinks that he wanted to document the founding story, which just might not be that well known. And he probably feels that since it's been a public company, everything else is more documented. Um, And he probably felt like he had a little less control at that point. I I know that that's what he talks about as his fear of going public. And, you know, maybe he just wanted to preserve that narrative from this is what the company used to be. I don't know. Do you guys have different thoughts? I think that that's that's largely right. It it does seem like 1980 was this sort of seminal moment in Nike history with um, them becoming the first major, you know, shoe manufacturer to enter into China. And then, you know, capping off the year uh, going public um, at like, I think it was like one hundred and seventy eight million dollar valuation. And that ultimately Phil was able still to to maintain significant control because they did do like a a dual share structure. You know, I don't know if it's like class A, class B type thing where I think he still had forty six percent equity stake, uh, even though, uh, you know, he had he had fewer shares. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like that was like the the seminal moment of like Nike then being a, you know, important company for, for decades to come. But I agree. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that happened to Nike, you know, past 1980. So, you know, Michael Jordan and all of that would, would, would love to, would love to see the sequel. In the short epilogue chapter, he talks about running into Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And it was just entertaining to me. He spent the whole book not really caring about net worth, uh, you know, not even paying himself, just trying to get this company working. And he literally specifically mentions their net worth compared to his. And it's clear that 
something in his mind has shifted a little bit from the founding to what his life has become since. So thinking through the entire narrative that we get in this book, what were the key elements that made Phil Knight successful? Obviously, there was more than one. But if you had to distill it to just a couple and the most important ones, what were they? I think resilience is like the really key trait for him. Like the all the struggles that they had with Onitsuka and the lawsuits and the you know uh, struggles over territory and the needing to find you know new 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 people to to manufacture for him and all of that. Like I just think that you know many other entrepreneurs would not have been able to to weather the, those storms. So I think it's just like being able to fight through the struggles that really really made Phil unique. Yeah, I've already said. I- I don't think that what distinguished him was his management style, because I think that that left quite a bit to be desired. But I do think that he was a student, right? Like he he was kind of a student of the world. He seems that he studied a lot, you know, and whenever he's talking about his flights that he's taking to Japan or to Taiwan or to China, he's reading up on the flight, like the how to do business in Japan book. And he's meeting with people and asking and taking notes all the time on how to make things work. That to me, I think was a distinguishing factor that he continued to be a student throughout his life. And then I agree with short, there was the resilience and what I would say is the just do it mentality, which interestingly, was not mentioned at any point in the book, as I'm sure that that slogan came to be after 1980. But I I can see where the slogan came from, because he did have that mentality of figuring out what needs to be done, and let's just go about and do it. Even if he poorly communicated that, uh, it always made sense to him, because he felt like it was what doing what was necessary. You know, I never really understand entrepreneurs who don't make products that they would want to use themselves, that aren't like really passionate about their own products. And I think that's one of the big advantages that Phil Knight and Bowerman, his partner, really had, that they had great insight into the products that they were making. They really understood themselves. They didn't have to go ask somebody else, what makes a good running shoe? And so... I think what he one of his number one characteristics that made him successful is insight into the market, complete understanding of the product, and having people on his team who also had complete understanding of the product. Yeah, just to add an anecdote there. Uh, at one point in the book, they had innovated on a new type of shoe. I forget what it was called, but it kind of splayed out, I guess, was their de- description of it for running shoes that... Uh, I think they said added more comfort or something. But then if somebody ever stepped kind of on either side, they would have knee problems essentially from the shoe. And they realized this after it went to market, they recalled it. It was, you know, they were incredibly worried about what the public backlash would be. But the public was still happy with it. And (laughs) because there just wasn't that much innovation in running shoes at the time that they were just happy that Nike was trying something when Adidas wasn't trying anything. So it seems like everybody kind of happily brought the shoes back and got another pair of Nikes. And Kopech, I think that just goes to show that how much he cared about the product and improving on the product. What did you learn about entrepreneurship from this book? So we talked about some of the great qualities that Phil Knight had, but what did you take away about entrepreneurship in general? So I think for me, one of the the big takeaways was, uh, we, we already talked about it a little bit, but but the idea that you can really start something while working full time. I feel like um, 
people too often think that, you know, they need to be able to, you know, quit their job and go 100% into some new startup. But like, it's totally possible to do it on nights and weekends and just like start working on something that you're passionate about. And it may even take years before it becomes like big enough that that can become your, your full time thing, but, but that that's OK. And you don't need to necessarily go get, you know, venture capital money in order to be able to start. I liked learning from Jeff Johnson in the book, uh, who, as I said, I think was under undervalued and a bit undervalued kind of even within the book. But he did so much. You know, he started a retail store. He took out ads in these magazines. He was doing customer interviews, getting customer feedback that really he wasn't being asked to do at all by Phil Knight. He was just so excited by the idea. And even though it wasn't his idea, he took it on himself. And I think for me, that that was a learning in terms of how you can be impactful both on an idea that somebody else has, but then just kind of the not asking for permission and doing whatever you think is needed. I'm going to agree with David. I also took away inspiration from the fact that he had a full-time job while he was starting Nike. I do some side businesses sort of on my own, but I could see myself doing something a lot larger over the next few years. And I definitely took some inspiration from this. Okay. So is there anything we missed? Is there anything else about the book that we should have talked about that was really important to you as you read it? I guess one piece that was just a a fun anecdote that we didn't really get into too much was um, Fujimoto, the spy at Onitsuka that he'd managed to develop. Um, I just thought that was a, a fun story. And, you know, he was basically claiming that, you know, all Japanese business is conducted with this like sort of corporate espionage kind of element to it. And so, you know, he had he had his man on the inside to hear about, you know, the fact that they were trying to cut deals with with other distributors in the U.S. and and get all the uh, the information on what Onitsuka was doing behind his back. I, th- I, th- I found all that really fun. We've referenced this a bit throughout, but when you think of Nike, you think of a brand leader, right? Like <laughs> Nike being so recognizable, the swoosh being recognizable, just do it. It really, I I feel like whenever I see Nike coming up in like case studies or something, it's always as like, as a brand and as kind of a marketing leader. And that just wasn't discussed in the book. You know, Phil Knight says several times how little he believed in marketing and advertising because he thought that having a good product should sell itself. And I would just be interested to know more about that story because the person who led the branding and marketing efforts at Nike probably faced a bit of an uphill battle with Phil Knight as the leader. And yet they still came up with one of the most recognized brands in the world. That's something that for me as going into the book, I was surprised that it just wasn't even referenced really at all. Two things that I think are interesting that are kind of side stories. So I understand why we didn't talk about them. One is Prefontaine, I think I'm pronouncing that right, who was this really like all-star runner and was seen as almost like a counterculture icon, I guess, a little bit. And there's movies actually all about Prefontaine. And sadly, he dies at just 24. But for a couple of years there, he's a paid employee of Nike to be a promoter of its products. He's a very, very well-known runner, successful in the Olympics. And he kind of has this aura around him. And it helps with this kind of cult-like image around Nike products that is developing as Nike is growing. So I think that it goes into that whole story we talked about earlier with working together with famous athletes. And But I think that there was something really special about Pre in particular. 
And then one other thing is I love our talk about Jeff Johnson, and I think we could have gotten more into that because Jeff Johnson is like a true believer. And he even was like a believer in the company when Phil Knight was not as much of a believer in the company when he was really down sometimes. And we talk sometimes about how a company needs a hundred or a thousand like true fans. Like you don't have to have millions of fans, right? You just have to have a few true fans to get yourself started. And maybe that's the same is true about employees, right? Like I would think Jeff Johnson was kind of like a true fan of the company and of Phil Knight. And having that kind of support system inside is really, really powerful. So I think we could have gotten more into that, but I think that's an interesting aspect of the book. Anyway, uh, so here's the big question. Do you recommend this book? Should our listeners go get this book and read it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would recommend it to you know anyone interested in you know the sporting goods world, anyone interested in um, you know just starting a company in the in the sports space, and frankly, anyone interested in you know really just the the ground up of a business. Yeah, I'd recommend it just as a good book, right? Like it it almost reads a little more like a novel uh, in that there are are the stories. He just leads a really interesting life for those ten years. I don't put it so much in the business book category, right? Like there's not so many tidbits I think that I would personally take away and apply to my corporate management consulting job that I have, but it's a good book and I really enjoyed reading it. I actually, I'll admit that I was the one who is the slowest to pick it up this month, which is why our podcast is delayed a week. And then I was sad that I had put it off for so long because I actually... I, I really liked it. I could have definitely read it during my vacation. I agree with you, Eli. I don't think there's a lot of like day-to-day insights here that you can necessarily apply to your job, but it's really inspiring. And so if you're thinking about entrepreneurship or you're thinking about maybe later in life starting a company or right now, it's a really inspiring story that might kind of give you that little bit of a kick to say, you know, well, based on his story, maybe that I can do it too, or maybe even just based on his story, maybe I feel just that little bit of extra inspiration that I need to get started myself. So I found it very inspiring. Okay, so next month, we're reading No Filter. Eli, you want to tell us what No Filter is? Sure. So No Filter, the inside story of Instagram was written by Sarah Fryer. Uh, It came out last year. So in 2020, I've heard a lot about the book. I think being about a company that we all use quite regularly, similar to the Netflix book, I'm excited to read a bit about the behind the scenes the and how the co-founders have continued to shape the company even after the acquisition by Facebook. So definitely read along with us next month about the inside story of Instagram. All right. Is there anything either of you want to plug and how can our listeners get in touch with you? Um, nothing to plug. You can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short. Same, nothing to plug this month, but on Twitter at emitch46. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. Now, I want to also remind all of our listeners to subscribe. And, you know, we've been really growing pretty nicely the last few months. So thank you to everyone who already has subscribed. But we have great episodes every month. So join us again next month and hit subscribe in your podcast player of choice. And we'll see you next month.